0: how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Exodus part two. Well, let's go on with uh, our study of Exodus and we've got to the fifth section of it, Delivered and Drowned. I cannot resist telling you the story about the liberal preacher. You know what a liberal preacher is? That's a man who reads his Bible with a pair of scissors and he cuts out all the miracles. And this liberal preacher was preaching about the Exodus and he said there was no miracle. He said, at that time and in that place the Red Sea was only half a metre deep. And a lady in the congregation shouted out, Hallelujah! And he stopped. He said, why do you shout hallelujah? She said, the great miracle. He said, but I've explained it. It was only half a metre deep and they just waded across. Uh, he said, what miracle? She said, drowning the Egyptian army in half a <laughs> metre water. <laughs> Whichever way you look at it, it was a miracle. <laughs> Having said that, let's look at the practical side of it. And first of all, the question of which was the route they took out of Egypt into the land of Canaan. There are three possibilities which you will find in various commentaries and Bible books. The first is what's called the northern route that they left Goshen here and they went through this row of sandbanks. These are sandbanks in a shallow part of the Mediterranean and they crossed the sea there. The Mediterranean they crossed, says this theory, and. Uh, couldn't be followed by the chariots across the sandbanks. If you look at a map of uh, Egypt, you'll find those sandbanks marked and uh, this is called Lake Sabonis inside and then went on to Kadesh Barnea. That's one theory. The second theory is that they went straight across to Kadesh Barnea, that's the middle theory, but there was a line of fortresses roughly where the Suez Canal is. The Egyptian had a very strong defence line here against any invasion from the east and they would have had to get through that line of fortresses, which is I think unlikely. They weren't armed and they weren't uh, able to fight. The third possibility, which I believe is the right one, was the southern route going down to Mount Sinai. This was where Moses had been a shepherd for forty years. He knew this country and it was down here that I believe he led them and certainly Jebel Musa, as the mountain is called today, is the one in long tradition where Moses received the Ten Commandments. Uh, Sadat, the president of Egypt, wanted to build a building on top of Mount Sinai that would combine a Jewish synagogue, a Muslim mosque and a Christian church in one building, but he was assassinated before that could happen. But all the tradition in the Middle East puts uh, Sinai down here. But let's look at this area in greater detail because this might explain something. The Bible doesn't say that God divided the Red Sea. What it does say is that he sent an east wind which divided the Red Sea. Now how could an east wind divide a sea? That's the question that many have asked. Well, let's look at that area in a little more detail. The Great Bitter Lakes were actually joined up to what we call the Red Sea in the olden days, and they were joined up by a shallow sea called the Reed Sea. And in fact, the Hebrew is much more likely to be the Reed Sea than the Red Sea. Here is what we now know as the Great Bitter Lake, but in those days it was joined up through this marshy channel called the Reed Sea. The fortified line came right down to the Bitter Lake. The Israelites left Goshen and came south because Pharaoh would only let them go into the desert thinking he could always bring them back from there. So you can imagine them camped here, hidden by a cloud. God sent a cloud to hide them from the Egyptian army approaching from that side. Now if this was where they were crossed, then two natural forces could have divided it A strong east wind would drive the water of the Great Bitter Lake that way, and on an ebb tide the water of the Red Sea would be going that way. So can you see a division coming? Rather than a Cecil B. DeMille two walls of water (laughs) coming, here we have it. But of course it doesn't explain the miracle at all. Why did the east wind just happen to come at the right time, says God sent it. So in looking at it in a sort of down-to-earth way like this, we're not trying to explain away the miracle. Uh, At the very least, it's a miracle of coincidence, but in the Bible there's no such thing as coincidence, there's only providence. But I believe that's what happened and in fact, um, a satellite photograph of this area reveals the channel that linked up, the Reed Sea is still there but it's dry now. Can you just see it? The Great Bitter Lake, you can see the line from a satellite photograph, you can see the old Reed Sea very clearly, whereas on the ground it's not so clear. But you can just see it joining up there so that I believe the southern route across the Reed Sea and down to Sinai is almost certainly the right route. From there they headed north again to Kadesh Barnea. This way they avoided that fortified line on the eastern front of Egypt. To me, the striking fact about this crossing of the Red Sea or Reed Sea is the fact that it happened on the third day after the Passover lamb was killed. Their liberation came the third day after the Passover lamb died. Even more striking, and this will cause you to think, the book of Exodus tells us the very hour when the Passover lamb had to be killed, and that had to be killed in the midst of the afternoon on the day before the Passover, which is 3 p.m. the midst of the afternoon. You following me? Passover lamb dies at 3 p.m. on the third day after that they finally escape and they're free of Pharaoh and will never see him again, beginning to see things. Well, we'll see more as we go on. Let's now move on to the next section. I have to go back to the original. Provided and protected. They are now in a place where there is no support for human life except a few Bedouin it is certainly not a place to take two and a half million people plus animals. There would be both external problems and internal problems which Moses had to face. The external one was food and water. Where do you get enough food and water? The answer is God had to provide it and he provided food for them in the form of little round pieces of whatever lying on the desert floor every morning and when they harvested it, they found it was edible, they gave it a name. They called it, what is it? (laughs) In Hebrew, manna, but it means what is it? What's for breakfast mummy? What is it? What are we having for lunch? What is it? What for supper? What is it? Not again! And they lived on what is it for 40 years we call it manner, as if that's a beautiful name but that's all it means. But they then complained, it was literally, literally bread from heaven. That's picked up again later in the Bible. But they lived on bread from heaven. They complained bitterly that they weren't getting any meat. They were used to a high protein diet in Egypt and they complained they weren't getting enough meat. Always tricky to complain to God. He sent such a flock of quails that they were lying 1.5 metres deep on the desert floor and they ate quails until they were sick. (laughs) Don't complain to God, he might give you what you want. What about water? Well they had a real problem with water. The first oasis they came to was this place, that's a photograph of a place called Mara and they saw water there and they dashed to it and tried to drink it and it was brackish and salty, it was undrinkable. But through a miracle, through Moses, it was cleansed and they were able to drink it. But you can almost see the brackish state of the water there, that's taken at the very place. However, the next place they got to, there was fresh water and this is a photograph of a place called Elim. And uh, so God provided when the water was bad, God improved it. And uh, when it was all right, well they didn't have a miracle they just had water so God provided for them and protected them do you realize they needed 2 million gallons a day for those that number of animals and people 2 million gallons per day later they would get it from rock reservoirs to me one of the biggest miracles of their providential journey was that their shoes never wore out i've been in sandals climbing Mount Sinai and it wrecked the sandals. The sharp stones of the desert of Sinai wrecked sho- shoes quickly and it says their shoes never wore out. Now you either have to say this is true and God did it or you have to dismiss it all as legend. There's no in-between stage when you read statements like this. But they also had internal problems. Can you imagine that number of people camping together? I mean sometimes it's bad enough just taking your family camping when you're all pushed together in the same tent or the same caravan. Can you imagine 2 million people? It's no wonder that one of the biggest problems Moses had was actual disputes between the people and he had to be a judge and they all came to Moses with their problems like uh, in some large churches everybody wants to go to the pastor with their problem. That, that's what was happening. Unfortunately, Moses' father in law was a good deal more sensible than Moses, though he was not one of God's people. And he said, You need elders. And Moses appointed 70 elders. Well, let's go back and on with the sections. We're into the second half now. And the first thing that happens in the second half are the Ten Commandments, written with God's finger on the rock, on two tablets of stone. Now every time you see a picture of those two tablets of stone, you see the first four commandments on one and the next six on the other. It wasn't like that at all. Ten were on one and ten were on the other. Why? Because this was a legal contract and one copy was God's and one copy was the people's. You understand now why it was two tablets of stone? Because that's how it should be done. There should be two copies, one for each party but since it was a covenant as well as a contract, God wrote them both. There was no bargaining went on. God said, now this is how you're to live. And he gave them three legal collections. One we call the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue which means ten words. The second we call the Book of the Covenant which we find in chapters 20 to 23 and then we have another book of laws in chapters 25 to 31 or 32 which are laws of worship. Now all these make up the law of Moses and more. There are more in Deuteronomy as well. But the law is not just Ten Commandments, it's a whole lot more. There are 613 rules and regulations for the, the way they're to live right before God. But let's start with the Ten Commandments. There are three basic principles or two that I want to mention. First of all, the principle of respect. All the Ten Commandments are based on that principle. Respect for God, respect for his name, respect for his day and then respect for people, respect for family life – honor your father and mother, respect for life itself, don't murder. Respect for marriage, don't commit adultery. Respect for people's property, don't steal. Respect for people's reputation, don't bear false witness. Respect, respect, respect. A healthy, holy society is built on respect. And a nationally known television comedian recently said, we intend to leave nothing sacred. And TV comedy more than anything else is destroying respect respect for the Queen, respect for authority, respect for the police, respect for the law. We can see in our society what happens when respect disappears, but God's law is based on respect. Loving God and loving your neighbour can be translated respecting God and respecting your neighbour. That's the basic principle behind God's law. It's a law of respect and loss of respect for God leads you to idolatry and loss of respect for people leads you into immorality and injustice so that you can see how the law is made up. It's a good law. Most of the Ten Commandments are about acts and deeds or words, but the last of the ten is about feelings. It's the only one about the heart. And perhaps that's why Paul once said that he kept all nine, but he couldn't manage the tenth. And the tenth one is, don't be greedy. Don't want what you haven't got. That's the only one concerned with your inner life. The rest are all concerned with behaviour. There's a principle about the ten laws, which the Jewish boys and girls learn on their fingers. And the principle is, is this, if you break one, you've broken them all because they belong together like a necklace. And you ladies, it doesn't matter where you break a necklace, but if you break it just once, the beads are all lost. And this is a profound principle. They're not ten separate commandments, they are the law. They're not laws, they're the law. And if you break it at any point, you have broken the law. If a policeman stops me for speeding, it's no use my saying, but I've stopped at every red traffic light this afternoon. So it doesn't matter how many laws you've kept, you've broken the law. And God says this is a whole law, a holistic law we would say today. You break one, you've broken the lot. It's spoiled, it's in pieces if you break it at any point. Respect you see is a whole thing and you can't have some respect and not others. You either are a respecting person or you're not and you show you're not when you break one. The second principle is responsibility. And Now we are brought up, I'm afraid, on psychology and sociology to believe that people are not responsible for their actions. They're even now trying to say that wickedness is due to a gene. Well, we know that original sin goes down through the genes, but the idea that some people are more wicked than others because they have a wrong gene means they're not responsible for what they do. The law of God says you are accountable, you are responsible, you have chosen to break this and it holds us responsible before God, every one of us, to live right before God. So the two principles of respect and responsibility are written in and therefore a third principle is also written in, the principle of retribution. There are sanctions in this law. One of them is capital punishment. The death penalty is applied to 18 different sins against God in the law of Moses. Aren't you glad you don't live under the law of Moses? Because uh, breaking the Sabbath, death penalty there is retribution here, there is punishment. And I notice particularly there's a very careful distinction in God's law between intentional and accidental breaking. There are two sorts of killing. There's intentional murder and there's accidental manslaughter. But in every case it says there is no sacrifice in the Mosaic law for continued deliberate, intentional sin. And there isn't in the New Testament either. You read the letter to the Hebrews. Well now, this law is given in a context and the context is this, I brought you out of Egypt, I'm going to bring you into Canaan. This is how you're to live now. Now that's an important point. It's on the basis of what God has done for them and what he will do for them, that he appeals to them to live right now. And it's the same in the New Testament, isn't it? It's on the basis of what God has done for you and what he's going to do for you that he says, now this is how I want you to live now. Without that context, the law becomes a harsh, impersonal, horrid thing. But in that context, it's a good thing. It fits. It's the response of gratitude to God's grace. Then we come to the fact that God wants to live with them. He gave the Ten Commandments at the top of Mount Sinai. Oh, let's look at Mount Sinai perhaps. Um, It's a fearsome mountain and there's another picture on here that you'll know what I'm going to talk about in a moment. Forget this for the minute. There's Mount Sinai. It's an extraordinary mountain. I've climbed up it at three o'clock in the morning before the sun came up, I found a little girl at the top, a little Jewish girl, reading the Ten Commandments in Hebrew and I said to her, what's your name? She said, Miriam. And I said, my, you've been here a long time. But anyway, St Catherine's Monastery is at the foot of it. But I always wondered when it said in the Bible, don't touch my holy mountain. I thought, how can you touch a mountain? It's ridiculous. Until I saw this picture you can actually walk up to the mountain and touch it because it rises sheer from the desert floor. Can you see that? It's like a cliff and they had to put a fence around it because God wanted them to realise he was a holy God and anybody couldn't just come up and talk to God because he's holy and therefore he said, nobody must touch my holy mountain. So Moses sensibly erected a fence around the bottom because you could just walk up to it. There are some people there and you could just walk up and touch the mountain. But God was going to communicate to them his utter holiness. He said, Moses can come up, Aaron can come up, but none of you must even touch my mountain. But now God says, having given Moses the Ten Commandments up here in the middle of lightning and thunder and fire, awesome sight. God says, I want to come down and live in the camp with you, but if I do, it must be a tent that communicates my holiness, a tent that you must treat respectably, that you must treat with awe, a holy place. In fact, right in the middle of the tent will be the room where I actually live and that will be the Holy of Holies. And so God gave them specifications for his tent. You had a glimpse of it earlier but let's look at it again. It had to be right in the middle of the camp and all the other tents had to be arranged around it in a special order which we'll come to later, and immediately around it were the priests and the Levites so that they were between the ordinary people and the holy place. And the tent itself had to be fenced off with only one entrance. And then God's tent was inside but that had two rooms and the inner room was God's room and into that, only once a year, one man could go, nobody else ever. And the whole tent is just full of detail. Let's look at some quick pictures of it. The beauty of it must be breathtaking, and yet most of the beauty was hidden. Beautifully embroidered curtains and coverings, and yet they were all covered with a badger skin outer thing that would hide the beauty from the people. All they would see would be this rough outer skin, only knowing that inside were golden pieces of furniture and beautiful curtains embroidered with heavenly colours was blue the colour of heaven, there was red the colour of blood, silver and gold. It was a magnificent tent with this high fence around it that you couldn't see over, so that in a sense it was hidden. Uh, There was a mystery attached to it. And here you see some of the priests at the outer veil, then there was another inner veil before the Holy of Holies. Well, let's go inside and, and sort of see inside. Here you have the outer room, the kind of uh, vestibule, the anteroom of God's palace if you like, and here there were the the table of the showbread, the seven-branch candlestick, another little altar. In fact, uh, let's go back to the other one. You see, if you wanted, even the priests approaching God had to come to an altar first and offer a sacrifice, kill an animal and burn it. Then they moved on to a great big basin to wash themselves clean. The whole thing is saying if you're going to come to God, you'll, you'll have to have a sacrifice first and then you'll need to be clean. It's full of meaning this, isn't it? In fact, God said this is a copy of where I live in heaven. This is just a replica of the real thing. So there's the anteroom and finally in the Holy of Holies. One piece of furniture of shittim wood covered with gold, the mercy seat. the cherubs inside some manor. They never saw it. Even when this tent was dismantled and moved somewhere else, this was covered up. And the tent was, had to be carried by special people. And the ordinary people had to keep a thousand paces away from it until it was erected again. The first thing, erect God's temple, tent, and then you could put your own up at the proper place around it. It all spoke of God's holiness, and yet it also spoke of a holy God who was willing to live in the midst of his people. Amazing. We have perhaps lost something of the awe and the reverence that is needed with a holy God. We've got two pally with him. We need to remember he's holy. The high priest, even the clothes of the priest were specified. They had to be right. The high priest wore on his chest the twelve jewels which represented the twelve tribes whom he was a priest for. And those twelve jewels crop up again in the last page of the Bible in the New Jerusalem. Well, we could spend hours on this but you'll have to read other books. It's full of meaning, full of symbolism. God says only special people can use this, priests, and only special people can build it. And that's when he gave them these incredible skills. You'd have thought all that would really bring home to the people God's utter holiness. But while Moses was up the mountain you know what happened. Aaron stayed down this time and the people came to Aaron and said, Moses is a long time up there, I don't think he's coming back. We want a God down here. And so Aaron said, give me your gold and they gave gold. And Aaron told Moses later, I put it all in a melting pot and out came this. I mean, if you're going to have an excuse, you can think of a better one than that. But that's what he had the bare face to say to Moses. I just put the gold in and look what came out. Now of course that photograph is of an Egyptian god. I told you about the bulls and the calves, a symbol of fertility and the bull is a very common symbol. I'm told there's a golden bull like that outside the European Stock Exchange in Frankfurt on Main. It's a symbol of wealth and fertility, prosperity. And this came out, said Aaron, and because idolatry leads to immorality, because the loss of respect for God leads to the loss of respect for people, they had a wild orgy. Well you know the story, it's a sordid bit. And when Moses came down and saw what was going on he broke both copies of the law and smashed them. He was only symbolising what they were doing, they'd smashed it already. And he said, how could you do this? And then he went back up the mountain and he said, God, I'm fed up with them and God said, so am I. <laughs> And God said, I think I'm going to finish with them. I think I'll try someone else. And that's when Moses reached the height of his career, I think. He took the form of a priest then and he said, God, if you're going to blot them out of your book, blot me out. I don't want to be the only one. And God replied, I only blot out of my book the names of those who sin against me and you haven't. And that thought is taken up all through the rest of the Bible when David sinned with Bathsheba. He said, God, don't blot my name out of your book, please. And in the last book of the Bible, Jesus promises, he who overcomes, I will not blot out his name from my book. The most important thing in life is to keep your name in the book of life, believe me. God says, I blot out of my book those who sin against me. It's a tragic story and when Moses insisted that the people were punished, do you know how many died? Three thousand. Now I want you to bear in mind that the law was given on Sinai on the 50th day after the Passover lamb was killed. Just let me put this together for you. The Passover lamb is killed at three o'clock in the afternoon. On the third day after that, they are liberated. On the 50th day after that, the day they called Pentecost, they were given the law and 3,000 people died through breaking it. Now, does that put something together for you? Isn't it amazing? The pattern of the old and the new, the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. On that same 50th day... Centuries later when the Jews were celebrating the giving of the law, God gave his Spirit and 3,000 people get saved. See, same fiftieth day, how the Bible fits together. Finally, the last section in um, Exodus, construction and consecration. They build it. Where did they get all the material? The gold, for example, one ton of gold was used. Well, it says that every man gave a fifth of an ounce or six grams of gold each. Where did they get it from? The answer is the Egyptians were so glad to see the back of them that they just gave them all their jewellery to get rid of them, take it and go after the ten plagues. The ordinary people just wanted the Jews to leave and they gave them all the money and the jewellery that they could give them to bribe them. So that's where they got it but it says that for the construction of the tabernacle, the people gave spontaneously, thoughtfully, regularly and generously. Now there's a sermon for somebody here as a preacher. It says they gave spontaneously, they didn't have to be wheedled or pressed into giving, they gladly gave. They gave thoughtfully, they thought about how much it should be. It wasn't just the top coin in their purse, they gave regularly, they went on giving and they gave generously and it says they had to be stopped giving. Isn't that lovely? Boy, if only the Lord's people always gave like that. You'd have to stop them giving. Hallelujah. And finally God takes up residence and consecrates the tent and they saw the glory come and from then on they saw the plume of smoke. I don't know if that was on that other picture, but uh, from then on they saw the pillar of smoke above that inner room. Now the inner room had no natural light whatever, not even candles, but it was ablaze with light. The glory of the Lord. And when they saw that move, they had to move, and when it stopped, they camped well now, I've got just under 10 minutes left in this talk. What's the Christian use of the book of Exodus? Well, he's the same God. He hasn't changed. The God of Exodus is our God and we are his people. He has not changed and he deals with us in the same way as he did with them. That's why many of the words in Exodus are used again in the New Testament, words like law, covenant, blood, lamb, Passover, Exodus, leaven, all these words in the New Testament get their meaning from the book of Exodus, so we need to know this book. And yet it's different. We are not under the law of Moses, we are under the law of Christ. That's very, very important. Otherwise I'm breaking the law of Moses now because he said you mustn't wear clothes of mixed material, it must be pure wool or pure cotton. I'm breaking the law of Moses. But I'm not under the law of Moses, I'm under the law of Christ. Now in many ways that's harder and in other ways it's easier. But the first way that Christians apply the book of Exodus is to apply it to Christ and see Christ in this book. Search the scriptures, he said, for they bear witness of me. Now the Exodus is central to the Old Testament. All the books after Exodus look back to Exodus as the redemption on which everything else is based. The cross is central to the New Testament. In what way is the exodus connected to the cross? Well, six months before he died on the cross, Jesus was on top of Mount Hermon, that snow-capped mountain at the north of Israel, 4,000 feet high, and he talked with Moses. And Luke's Gospel tells us what they talked about. I wonder if you've ever noticed what they talked about it says they talked about the exodus which Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? Moses and Jesus talking about the exodus that Jesus was going to accomplish. That gives us a clue. Jesus of course died at three o'clock in the afternoon, at the very minute when thousands of Passover lambs were being slaughtered. That's why Paul says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. It's all there, so the angel of death can pass over. He rose from the dead on the third day after it, and it's his resurrection that liberates us from death. He is the bread from heaven. New Testament says he is the rock from which Moses drew the water for the children of Israel. John in his Gospel says, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What an interesting word to use, literally, and pitched his tent among us. For the tabernacle to us is Jesus, God dwelling in the midst of people. So we understand Christ much better now and he said, I didn't come to destroy the law but to fulfil it. So we apply the book of Exodus not only to Christ but to Christians. For example, crossing the Red Sea prefigures baptism. Paul says the children of Israel were baptised into Moses in the Red Sea and you've been baptised into Christ. What crossing the Red Sea was for them, your baptism is for you. Did you ever see that link? Amazing link. We too have a Passover meal regularly. For the Lord's Supper is simply a Passover. I went to a synagogue in northeast London, northwest London, Finchley, and I, I was the honored guest and sat next to the rabbi for the Passover meal. Wonderful privilege. And he took bread and he broke it, gave thanks for it, and gave it to the people. And then he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks and he passed it to the people. And then he happened to look at me. And he said, this is not communion. (laughs) He saw on my face what I was doing, what it meant to me. Because this was my Passover meal. See, I was remembering the setting free, the liberation of Christ. And Paul says, rise and keep the festival, but not with the leaven of malice and wickedness. There's an equivalent of unleavened bread in the Christian life. Leaven in the New Testament is usually a picture of malice and evil and bad thinking. And there's a festival we have to keep without the leaven. But we also have a law to keep. In many ways, the law of Christ is much harder than the law of Moses. The law of Moses says, don't kill anybody. Well, I haven't done that to my knowledge. Have you ever wished anybody dead, says Jesus? law of Moses says, don't commit adultery. Well, I haven't done that. but the law of Christ, is, have you ever thought about it? much harder to keep the law of Christ than the law of Moses. I'd rather try and keep the law of Moses any day, wouldn't you? And yet it's much easier because we don't need a lot of priests and a lot of ritual and a lot of special buildings. As one dear Scottish lady said, when I want to enter the Holy of Holies, I just throw my apron over my head and we enter right into the Holy of holies. Whenever you pray, you can enter the holiest place of all, unhindered, in the name of Jesus. There's a big dif- difference then between the new covenant and the old. Under the law given at Pentecost, 3,000 die. Under the spirit given at Pentecost, 3,000 live. I'd rather have the spirit than the law. And the spirit writes the law inside. But there is still a future deliverance for Christians equivalent to the Exodus. If you read the book of Revelation, you'll find the plagues of Pharaoh are going to happen all over again. There is an astonishing correlation between the plagues at the end of history and the plagues of Pharaoh. And those who remain faithful to Jesus will come through all that and be victorious. And do you know what the book of Revelation says? That the martyrs and those who have overcome all the pressures of persecution outside and temptation inside, they will sing the song of Moses. In heaven you'll hear the song of Moses. And if you go back to Exodus in chapter 15, the first song recorded in the Bible is a song composed by Miriam to celebrate the drowning of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And when all these worlds, this world's troubles are over and we are safe in glory, we can then sing the song of Moses. We shall have had a double exodus, both the exodus of the cross, which has happened already, and the escape from all the trouble that's coming through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.